Hello, you're listening to the Sydney Writers Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name is Valerie Koo and you can find us online at sydneywriterscentre.com.au. We're Australia's leading writing centre and you'll find a wealth of resources on our website and blog, including interviews with authors, writing tips and valuable ideas on how to get published. Whether you're interested in writing a novel, short story or articles for magazines, you'll find information and courses to help you get there. Or if you want to hone your business writing skills, we can help you too. Our presenters are the best in the industry. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. Linda Javen is the author of eight books, including the bestseller Eat Me, a romp through the lives of four Sydney women and their erotic exploits. Eat Me was her first novel and was a bestseller here and overseas. Though she was born in the US, Linda lived in China, Taiwan and Hong Kong for nine years and has been an Australian citizen for over 20 years. As well as being a best-selling author of fiction, she's also an academic, translator from Chinese and writes extensively on art, culture and China. She's a fellow in the Pacific and Asian History Division at the Australian National University. In 2001, she published The Monkey and the Dragon about her friendship with a Taiwanese pop star. She's also written several plays. Since Eat Me was published in 1995, she has published five more novels, Rock and Roll Babes from Outer Space, Miles Walker, You're Dead, Dead Sexy and The Eternal Optimist. Her latest book is A Most Immoral Woman. So thanks for joining us today, Linda. Oh, it's a pleasure. Now, Linda, when and how did you decide that writing was going to be one of your main careers? Um, it's interesting. I always uh, thought reading was going to be my main career when I was a little kid. I wanted to be a librarian. And very specifically, I wanted to be the librarian. I had an idea this was actually a job. The librarian who got to read all the new books and choose which ones went to the library. Um, it occurred to me only when I was about... I can't remember if I was 11 or 12, something like that. I wrote an essay for school um, about Cyrano de Bergerac. We were supposed to pick uh, something, read it, and write about it. And my teacher wrote on the top of that essay when she handed it back uh, that it was very well written and, and had I ever thought about becoming a writer. Mm. Um, it seemed to me something that was, you know, that I couldn't possibly do. Um, uh, it just was. It seemed out of reach. It didn't seem like something that one would do, like become a teacher or a doctor or something. Yeah. So it occurred to me only when my teacher wrote that little, probably for her quite offhand comment, um, on my essay on Cyrano de Bergerac, and 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 then it it lodged in my brain. A little bit later, um, when I was in um, um, high school, uh, there was an, a creative writing class that was introduced as a new element in the curriculum and the teachers chose which students they thought had the most potential uh those students were allowed to take the class and i wasn't chosen <laughs> so i thought oh well you know obviously i'll never be a a novelist even though i love reading novels and i do it all the time and i you know i had that sort of fantasy but oh probably won't work out for me but i still kind of want to be a writer i'm just probably won't be a very good one so i i took a little blow with that, but um, I think it's always stayed in my head. So then what steps did you take after that, um, before then your, your first novel, which became a bestseller, Eat Me, what steps did you take before you, before you got to that? Well, I always have needed to write, so that's something else. Um, a lot of people say, oh, I want to be a writer, but I don't have time, and that's just not 
the way it works. You have to be completely obsessed with writing. So uh, even when I was younger, I would write little stories, I would write little poems, I would write things all the time. And I loved doing essays for school. Um, so I was always writing. And then um, when I was 23 or 22 or something, um, it was after I graduated university, I was living in Taiwan. I wrote my first novel, which was absolute crap. Um, <laughs> I didn't have enough experience of the world and I didn't know what I was doing. But I did try and I wrote, um, I got a good start on it and then I realized it was absolute crap and threw it away. But I was writing constant, I was writing poetry all the time. I was writing stories. I was always writing and writing essays. I started to work for a little magazine. Um, when I was about 29, I wrote my second novel, and I was very, very close to finishing this one. I was very happy with it. And it was a novel about um, a society of mutants in a post-nuclear holocaust world. <laughs> and that, I mentioned it to somebody. I've been doing this very quietly every Sunday afternoon because um, I was working full-time as a writer, as a, as a journalist. And then what happened was um, when I told somebody about this, they said, oh, have you heard about the new book Ridley Walker? It's about a mutant society in a post-nuclear holocaust world. <laughs> and I just went, oh, whatever I do now, it's going to look like I was copying Ridley Walker. So that sort of went into the wastebasket. Uh, I wrote a third novel um, a couple of years later. And meanwhile, I'm writing, writing, writing. I was always writing essays. And by now I was writing lots of, uh, you know, lots of um, essays, journalism, everything else, travel writing. And... But in terms of novel writing, I then gave it a third try. And this one, I actually liked quite a lot. Uh, I put it, but nobody wanted to publish it. Um, so this was, I think, the early 90s when I was trying to get it published, or the late 80s, I can't remember. Mm -hmm. And um, and nobody was interested. Uh, and so what happened was I put it in a drawer. Mm -hmm. Actually, that novel is going to be not my next novel, but the one after that. It's already right. contracted. Yes. Oh, <laughs> I'm going to return to it. It's going to be quite different. I've got to completely rewrite it, and it's going to go way beyond what it was. Mm. But it certainly has given me um, – that That one is, is, is worth continuing. And what's that one going to be about? Um, I'll save that for later, but it's going to be <laughs> called uh, – probably going to be called The Education of Proofreader Ding. Oh, right. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Intriguing. So then Eat Me came out. Um, and I remember at the time reading it and just being completely blown away. That was before Sex in the City. And it was yeah, before oh, Chicklet. Yeah. It was before Bridget Jones. So <laughs> women weren't writing funny funny erotic stuff you know what made you decide to do funny erotic stuff oh, i was doing it for myself and i showed it to a friend and she said you should get this published and then one thing led to another and yeah that's how it happened mm. um i published the first stories in uh, australian women's forum mm. uh and then the publisher came along so things rolled on from there but i, I wrote for myself i think if you don't write for yourself mm. uh then there's no point because you never know if you're going to be writing for anybody else. I, I taught a, a workshop recently in which somebody who was taking their first workshop and unlike a lot of the people in the workshop who had novels in their drawers or half finished novels or whatever. Mm. And I teach workshops for everybody. When I do that, I, I love people who've, who are coming in for the first time, but I was quite surprised when this one um, said, and I had said in the beginning, this is about writing. It's not about publishing. 
she's the one who said, um, so uh, how do I get published? And I thought, well, <laughs> what I said was, you have to write first. And if you're not going to write to amuse yourself, if you're not going to write because you have to write, uh, then it's not going to be fun for you. And it's not going to be worthwhile because ultimately you have to write for yourself. And if you don't do that, nobody else is going to relate to it either. And you probably, you probably won't get, you won't get published if you're always thinking about writing for publication, if that makes sense. Mm. You know, you, you have to think about, you have to be very, very true to yourself write what you want to read, write something that means something to you. Mm. That's, that's the most important thing. And then if you don't get, if you don't get published, then I almost said punished. If you don't get published, (laughs) (laughs) then um, you've at least done something that is meaningful to you. I've got tons of stories and things that are on my computer that have never been published. Mm. So you've written fiction, nonfiction, Erotic fiction, a variety. Do, do, do you have a preference? Is there some? Is there a genre that you actually No, prefer? my preference is always what I'm working on now. Right. <laughs> it's always the most interesting thing to me is what I'm working on now and, mm. and what I have worked on in the past. It's almost like a puzzle that's been solved. So mm. I don't ever like to return to exactly the place I was before. Mm. I don't want to repeat myself. It's not interesting enough to me. Right. And and it would be very interesting to my publishers because then you're a consistent known quantity. They know um, where to put you in the bookshop. <laughs> they know where to put you in the bookshop and people know what to expect when a new novel of yours comes out. So it's uh, it's not a really smart career move, but otherwise I think I would just bore myself. <laughs> it's just not in my nature to do that. Mm. And I admire writers who can, who can find mm. some, you know, who, who, who constantly... Um, who can be consistent and yet fresh. I, I, it's just probably a failing of mine. I, can't, I, I, I don't know. I'm, I always want to go somewhere new, really new. Mm, I'm sure it's not a failing. Tell us about your latest book, A Most Immoral Woman. How did that idea come about to start off with? The idea came about, um, I can tell you the exact moment. I was reading a biography of George Morrison, the great Australian journalist from the turn of the century. It was a new biography. I had the old biography on my bookshelf by Cyril Pearl. This one was new. It was by Robert Macklin and Peter Thompson. Um, I was reading it for review for The Age. And as I was reading, I was thinking, God, Morrison is so much fun. I've forgotten how much fun Morrison is. Really, really enjoying him as a character and thinking, hmm, wouldn't it be great someday to do something around it? It was a very vague thought. I was reading the book. I came upon the description of George Morrison's affair with the woman the biographers described as the American nymph- uh, American heiress nymphomaniac, <laughs> Mae Perkins. Uh, about three pages discussion of this wild affair in which Morrison completely lost it. Uh, she was she out libertined him by a mile, uh, and he was totally wrapped with her. Uh, and she was unlike anyone she, he had ever come across. And this was all unfolding against the backdrop of the Russo-Japanese War. Mm. When I was reading those three pages, I, my brain just lit up and I went, that's my next novel. Mm. And so it was. And you have a real interest in China as well. Oh, yes, long-standing. Um, 
Tell us how that, is that always been there? What fascinates you about it? I studied Chinese history in university, which was somewhat accidental in the sense that in my first year, when I thought I was going to be doing a, a, um, a degree in, in, in the study of politics and government, I um, took a course in East Asian history that somebody said was taught very well. And so it was because I could never leave the subject again. I just mm. was completely fascinated. So when I graduated, that was in a ta- at a time when China was not open to the world. It was uh, just, I was studying in the Maoist era and it was just, um, Cultural Revolution had just finished. I graduated in 77 and it was, you know, you wouldn't study Chinese history or Chinese language because you thought you couldn't make money out of it. Let's put it Mm. that way. You wouldn't even, I didn't even know if I would ever get to China. That's how, that's that's really what, what it was like, you know. I had no idea whether I would ever actually be able to step foot in China but the history was so interesting mm. so I just did it because I loved it and and I had no idea what I was going to do afterwards I just had vague thoughts of popular history <laughs> 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 and I went to Taiwan to continue my study of Chinese mm. um, and I was in Taiwan and then I moved to, to Hong Kong China was opening up uh, I went to China um, yeah, 30, 30 some years later, I'm still going to China. I'm mm. going to China two days, as a matter of fact. <laughs> right. So and I've just come back, yes. Wow. So did you um, have to do a lot of additional research for oh, your yes. book? Or, right. Oh, yes, tons of research. I uh, Some of the books that I needed were on my shelf. Mm. Um, some of the books were in the ANU, uh, Menzies Library, which is one of the better Asian Studies Libraries in Australia, and I'm a visiting fellow at the Australian National University in East Asian History, mm. so I have access to their libraries, and um, I spent quite a lot of time there uh, looking at first-person accounts of the Boxer Rebellion that would mention George Morrison and give me a little bit of insight into their character. I also had to look up May, because although, as I discovered when I went to the old biography of George Morrison, although I discovered that this most immoral woman, as um, Morrison called her, and hence the title of the book, A Most Immoral Woman, although she also rated a rather special mention in the other biography, um, nobody really had gone into who she was. She was the daughter of of an American politician, uh, of a millionaire, um, but beyond that, her past was never explored. So I did... um, Research. Also, she had left a number of cryptic comments, which Morrison recorded in his diary. Uh, and the biographer is mentioned because it's quite salacious and interesting. Things like she was seduced by a Dr. Jack Fee in a restaurant called the Hens and Chickens or Poultry or some such. That's what Morrison said. How do you get seduced in a restaurant? Poultry? Chickens? Hens? You know, I, I wanted to know everything about her. And I wanted to know how to unlock the secrets of what... She told Morrison and Morrison recorded in his diary. So that took me to Oakland, California, uh, and the state, um, the Californian State Historical Archives, uh, and biographies of wild women in San Francisco at the turn of the century, um, and so on and so forth. I did a lot of research. I also realized I knew almost next to nothing about the Russo-Japanese War. So I had to go back very seriously into 
research on Morrison because even though I'd read two biographies, I reread the first biography. I w- read his letters again. Um, I wanted to get a good handle on his language and his thinking. When he mentioned in his diaries, I read his diaries uh, for several years. Um, he kept very detailed diaries. I read those diaries. I took notes on the way he spoke. If he said he read a book he read one book at one point, and it was the most immoral book he had ever read. <laughs> um, I thought, well, this is very interesting. So I went and I had to track down that book, which is very, very hard to track down. And I did. I found it in England and got it shipped over um, to understand. And that gave me an insight. That appears in A Most Immoral Woman. It's the book Anna Lombard by Victoria Cross. Mm. So I have a little bit of fun with that book because I realized I had to think about why he thought it was the most immoral book and it wasn't too hard to figure out. So I did tons of research around every aspect of uh, the story behind a most immoral woman. I did the Russo-Japanese War. I went to Japan. I went to Yokohama because and mm. Tokyo because the story also has scenes in Yokohama and Tokyo. Mm. I went to China to... What was known then as Weihai Wei um, is now just Weihai. Uh, the municipal archives were wonderful there. They opened their doors to me. They gave me a desk and they they said, what do you want to see? So I got to look up all sorts of things. I looked into all of the side characters like Lionel James, who wasn't originally very important to the story. I mean, I had no idea he was in the story, really. Uh, he was a colleague of, of Morrison's who wanted to bring wireless telegraphy to the arena of war reporting. I came across a book that was a biography of Lionel James. I got that by an Irishman. I began to correspond with the Irish uh, author. And I suddenly realized that Lionel James held a major clue to the plot of A Most Immoral Woman. Mm. So the research was phenomenal, really. But it was great and it was fun. Obviously, you enjoyed it. So what period of time lapsed between when you that light bulb moment and when you actually put pen to paper or fingers to keyboard? What kind of research period was that? And did you do all the research first before you think, thought you could mm, write the story? I didn't do all the research first because you often are writing and then you realise what you don't know. Mm. I did a significant... Oh, I, I, the light bulb moment was in 2004. Right. Um, I was working on... Uh, the Infernal Optimist. The Infernal Optimist is the novel that came out before, the, the novel before this one, mm-hmm. before Most Immoral Woman. Mm-hmm. Um, it's another novel I'm, I'm, I'm actually quite proud of. I really like um, uh, The Infernal Optimist. But I was working on that mm-hmm. and very involved with it when this light bulb went off. So what I would do is just just work on the research, think about it, begin some research notebooks, begin thinking but I was mainly, my, my, my head was mostly in The Infernal Optimist. And, you know, the whole process of publishing, there's gaps where your editor has your book and maybe you're working on some essays for magazines, but you also have that sort of mental space to, you have that mental space to go into your new project. So it's very hard. People want to know very cleanly how much time did it take to research. And, yeah. and you know, it's, all, it's a bit of a mixed-up process. From the time the light bulb went off, 2004, to the time it was published, 2009, is a five-year period. But I wouldn't say I was writing it for five years, probably more writing it for three years or something like that. So you you, you also write plays, you travel, you you do work in academia, (laughs) you've got several projects on the go, you're already talking about the not the next book but the book after that. And I've just read an article on how multitasking is bad for you, so I'm very (laughs) depressed. (laughs) So how in the world do you well, fit it all in or juggle it or do you actually have sort of a strict schedule that you do this then and this then? 
how, how do you fit it all in? I'm a bit ADD, um, <laughs> which is really bad. I'm, I'm working. My, my goal in life is to uh, bring myself into real focus so that I don't jump from thing to thing. But uh, I don't always achieve that. I, I really do feel very proud of myself when I can work on one project for a couple of hours without thinking of, the, of another one. Uh, I, I thought I, you were going to say a couple of weeks. <laughs> oh, no, are you kidding? <laughs> I wish. I wish. That's my dream. Uh, no, I'm doing way too much and it's stupid. Um, but it's also... It's also interesting. I, I don't sleep as much as I'd like to. I would really, I haven't slept. I've slept about, I was talking to my agent this morning and I think I've only slept eight hours, uh, maybe three or four times in the last three or four months. <laughs> and I'm, and it's my goal. It's my dream. It's, I wish I didn't pop awake at 5.30 in the morning going, get to the computer. <laughs> So when you are, you know, you have enough research done for whatever it is that you're working on at the time and you want to sit down, do you actually, you know, grab moments of two hours here or there or do you have a Oh, yes, routine? yes. And when I get into my books, uh, big mm. projects, I certainly devote very concentrated, you know, um, periods of time, like a week or, or, or a couple of weeks where I really don't do anything else. And that includes uh, when, I, when I was working on my um, – book about the monkey and the dragon. You're saying I taught university. I, there was recently a creative nonfiction course in Sydney University, which uh, I gave a, three lectures to about the monkey and the dragon as mm. creative nonfiction. Um, and it made me think back on that time. And I realized I was really focused on that. I love it when I can just focus on one project. It's actually the best thing in the world. Um, and I did have that with that. I think my life has become a bit fractured recently. I've been doing way too much traveling um, and working on an opera in China, which is just monstrous in terms of the way it it loops back in and eats up chunks of my life that I had allocated mentally to other projects. Right. Uh, it's it's hard. It's 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 hard. And and reading that article, I think it was in the Guardian, um, just. In the last couple of days about how multitasking is really bad for you. <laughs> it reminded me that I need to I need to focus. And part of that is also too many deadlines all coming in at the same time. Yes. Um when one of the things I think is very important for writers to manage it a bit better than I usually do, because I think sleep is really really a great thing yes. um, and I also think that something I like to do and I try even when I'm very very hectic to do is uh, some form of of quieting down and what uh, I suppose I believe is called active meditation so I've just learned to, I'm just learning to play the guitar I just do chords and, and <laughs> things like that I'm not really I've two little Beatles songs that I play really badly. You know, that, that's about the level of it. And, oh, and, and um, Love is in the Air, <laughs> which I play rather badly as well, but I'm enjoying. Uh, so I've got a very, very small repertoire, and I mainly just sit there and do finger um, exercises and, and, and scales. But I find it really meditative and really right. wonderful. And uh, exercise where I just go out and I walk and I try to stay in the present moment. I think it's very important to stay in the present mm -hmm. and to 
to get your monkey brain, as the Buddhists say, under control. Because I've got, um, I've got such a monkey brain. Mm-hmm. I've got like, uh, I've got an entire zoo. <laughs> Now, back on the monkey and the dragon, which is about your friendship with a Taiwanese pop star, and it's creative nonfiction. So why did you decide to do that book, which was a little bit different from your usual material? Well, I wanted to do a China book for a long time, of course. Um, And that book, uh, it was necessary to write for a number of reasons. I was fascinated by... Uh, the subject of the book, uh, the monkey of the monkey and the dragon, Ho De Jin. He was one of my best friends and also a major figure in the Chinese world. He was at one point a household name for like a billion people. He And his whole story was in some ways reflective of and some ways in the way a mirror is not life, but it reflects life. I mean, I would say that his life was like a mirror to Chinese history. Uh, and the relationship of Taiwan and, and, and China and the history of pop music in China, uh, the development of rock and roll. But there were so many things that fascinated me about this best friend of mine, and I had a unique insight into his life. I'd always thought, mm, I'm going to write it. I've written about him many, many times for magazines, but I hadn't actually, I hadn't figured out how to do a book about him or at what point I should sit down and do that. Then he became involved in Tiananmen in 1989. And there was um, uh, something that happened that created a massive scandal uh, throughout the Chinese world. And he suddenly was reviled as somebody who had lied and had done something really disgraceful. In fact, he hadn't done that. And I was one of the very, very few people, and I was the only person actually who was not in a Chinese prison um, (laughs) at the time who could clear his name. Mm. And so even though uh, Western readers of The Monkey and the Dragon might not even realize that that bit was the motivating part for me Mm. that made me say, I have to write this book, Uh, because there's so much else in it. Um, there's an entire portrait of the 80s in China and the opening up of China and, and the, 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 um, the cultural renaissance that occurred at that time. All of that stuff, all told from my personal, mixed up with personal memoir and, of course, Ho's story as the center. Uh, people might not realize that that one event is what pushed me to say, I have to do this and I have to do this now. Now, you talk about writing articles um, because you've got a background as a journalist. When you write articles, it's obviously you you complete it in a much shorter space of time. Is it hard not to get that sort of sense of satisfaction when a book takes so much longer? How do you switch hats also between, you know, writing something that is very self-contained and very succinct um, versus something that can take five years? Uh, I think... For me, I need both because uh, there's a sense of huge satisfaction when something's finished. And I also, my brain works in so many different ways and I'm interested in so many different things that um, the articles and short stories give me a little bit of an outlet, uh, the the steam that's building up, you know, in one of those pressure cookers, uh, you you have to have that little valve. And so (laughs) my steam escapes into various forms um, while the while the stew is cooking in the pressure cooker. <laughs> it's just a different thing. It's just, I just, uh, I don't know. It, everybody works differently. I really, really love working in different forms. And I find that 
whatever I'm doing helps me with everything else I'm doing. And that includes translations as well as everything else. So, mm, mm. Um, And so tell us what you're working on now. Uh, right now, <laughs> um, I've got uh, the two new novels um, that are coming up. I've got a series of short stories which just, just pop up. They just come. They just happen. Um, uh, I have an, the opera, uh, which the, for which the libretto is finished, um, but still may need work, and I'm very involved in the whole production process. Right. Um, uh, the I'm involved in, uh, right now I'm writing a book review of a Chinese novel, and I've just been asked by the editor of the China Heritage Quarterly to translate a little excerpt. So <laughs> that's what I was doing when you called. Right. Um, I do, uh, what else am I doing? I've got something due for the monthly. <laughs> <laughs> and I've got, um, I've promised a big issue of short story. So, uh, oh, my God. <laughs> that's, I think, and that's probably not all. If I actually looked around my desk hard enough, I could find some other things that I'm supposed to be working on or if I looked at my do list. <laughs> so um, what would your advice be to people who are listening who, you know, want to do what you're doing, who want to write for a living? Do it. Who want to write books? Do it. There's no, there's no, you know, people, I don't actually understand professional creative writing courses. I think workshops are great. Mm -hmm. uh, I think people should go and take workshops. I don't think you need, I don't think anybody should be, cowed by the fact that they're not in a PhD on creative writing at some university. That's, mm. I, did, I never studied writing, you know, mm. from the time I was excluded from that high school class. <laughs> <laughs> that scarred you, didn't but it? But I've always had to write. So I think it's a really weird question. I think your best teachers will always be books. If you don't read a lot, you're never going to be a great writer. I hate to say it. People in this age, I call it the princess age, where everybody is special and everybody is told that they can do anything they want. Well, that's bullshit. That doesn't, that's not the way the world works. Not everybody is going to be a great writer. You can graduate with a PhD in creative writing and you might not be a great writer. Um, and you can take as many workshops as you want and you might never get that novel finished. If you need to write, if you're driven to write, then you will write. And if you read a lot, you will know what good writing is. And that's really the essence of it. I, don't, I don't, really don't believe in, in, um, in it, that, it's more, that it's much more complex than that. And I, I, I think that anybody who, anybody who walks into one of my workshops and says, when I say, what do you read? You know, and they say, oh, I don't read because if I read other writers, then I'm afraid of getting influenced. Uh, I tell them straight up, I say, well, you're never going to be a great writer. Because you have to know, you have to see, you have to understand, and you have to be able to read and, and see what, what the potential in language and story and structure and character is. Mm. You, have to, you have to look at what, you know, you have to look at, I, I'm not going to prescribe books, but I mean, if you looked at Madame Bovary, you know, which is to my mind just about a perfect novel, um, and you thought, why is this so good? And if Madame Bovary isn't your thing, look at what you, if you like fantasy, then read the best fantasy and figure out how does this work? Why am I enjoying this one? And why am I not enjoying that one? Those are your best teachers, your, your books. And if you're not a big reader, get that habit. 
Yes. And if you and if you want to be a writer because you have some idea that it's a glorious sort of profession and that you get lots of fame and and that you get to jet around the world, well, you do get a little bit of fame. You don't get much money, um, and um, you know unless you're extremely lucky. And it's a it's a hard and 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 for the most part fairly lonely life because you have to have the discipline to sit in front of your computer, and um, and do it. It's not. It's 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 but it's something that you have to be driven to do. So if you're not driven to do it, I just suspect sometimes that when people ask that question, they're not there yet. I hate to say this, but that's absolutely my belief. Mm. So the bottom line really is read, analyze, and just do it. Yes, and mm. and if you started to do it and you run into problems, take workshops or get advice. Um, see if you you know if you've completed a manuscript. Um, and you can't get an agent, um, look for those people who do manuscript assessments. Make sure you get a good manuscript assessor. Uh, listen seriously to criticism. That's another thing. A lot of people, I run into some young writers. It's very weird. Uh, it tends to be, I haven't heard this from older people going into fiction. I hear this sometimes from younger writers, and I think it's because of the blogging, uh, the whole blogging ethos where you don't even correct yourself. Uh, you don't want to be corrected by anyone else. Um, people go, oh, I don't like to, you know, I, how do you, do, I get asked often by, um, and, and I'm not saying all young writers like this at all because the good young writers are never like this, okay? And I know a lot of those really great young writers and I've mentored some. But occasionally I get these people who say, how do you deal with um, editors and publishers? I mean, how do you fight them? How do you, how do you make sure that they don't interfere with your work? Or how do you make sure that they don't change your work? And I'm like, what are you talking about? A good editor or a good publisher has in mind uh, making your work as good as it can be. Do you think that, 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 that they're the enemy? No, they're your best friends. <laughs> um, it's probably part of the princess theory as well. Yes. <laughs> princess syndrome. Um, well, yes, on that note, <laughs> I could talk to you for hours, Linda. But um, <laughs> Thank you so much. That was a great interview. <laughs> Thank you very much. Good luck to all your listeners and just write. You've been listening to the Sydney Writers' Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name's Valerie Koo. You can find us online, including details about our courses, seminars and online learning, as well as information on our regular competitions where you can win books, movie tickets and literary experiences at www.sydneywriterscentre.com.au or visit me on my personal website, www.sydneywriterscentre.com.au ValerieKoo.com. That's ValerieKoo, K-H-O-O.com. Thank you for listening.